We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen. Apparently, the CBC is offended to learn through Twitter. It is funded by the federal government. I thought everyone knew that. <laughs> Here's Scott Thompson. I think there's more chatter generated about defunding the CBC than there ever was when people were wackily suggesting uh, defend, <laughs> defunding the police. Or is it just me? Uh, good afternoon. It's 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Hamilton today. We got a jam-packed show. I'm going to need a shoehorn to fit all of this in. There's so much stuff going on. And, uh, some of you, oh, you, you laugh so hard. Uh, you'll cry so much it'll make you laugh. You'll laugh so much it'll make you cry. Uh, you can take your own position. Uh, feel free to jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Send us a note. Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. And of course, playing Roger Daltrey today. The Who, number 109 on Rolling Stone's top 200 singers who? of all time. Uh, Roger Daltrey. Who? <laughs> yeah. Got me. All right. Uh, what's going on with the weather? I mean, uh, a week ago, uh, you know, people were opening their pools. Now I'm looking, did I just see flurries outside? What the heck is that? Uh, yeah, it's uh, hovering around the freezing mark, around two degrees. So depending upon where you are, you might get uh, a little flurry here and there, which is really just another blast of reality of where we are because it is April 18th. Uh, there you go. Don't take the snows off yet, as they say. Although I do have my appointment booked for the end of the month. Uh, what else we got? Lots of stuff. I'll try to whip through this as quickly as I can. Uh, playoffs, Leafs, and Tampa Bay tonight, you know. Uh, good luck. Uh, we're all hoping, including my late father, uh, who's been throwing or who had been throwing his slipper at the TV every Saturday night uh, for like the last, uh, how many years has it been? I think the last one, uh, 54. Five years ago, I guess. All right, gas going up tonight. Buy it now, eight cents a liter. We're going to talk to Dan McTagg about that coming up a little later on. Inflation easing a bit, 4.3%, but that's the overall. Uh, when it comes down to things like groceries and what happens, things that count, uh, they're all still up uh, quite considerably, which is why Galen Weston is now stepping aside as the president of uh, the Loblaws uh, group. Uh, he's still there. He's still heavily involved and, and, and still gets the check. But I guess he's tired of getting eggs thrown at him uh, because uh, he has become the whipping boy. Once the poster boy, now the whipping boy uh, for high grocery prices. Uh, there you go. Uh, what else we got? Oh, brand new Ontario Place uh, coming to, or sorry, Science Center coming to Ontario Place. Uh, interesting uh, developments there. That uh, unveiled today. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, and uh, the FBI in the United States uh, making many arrests in regard to Chinese Communist Party police stations in the U.S. They don't take any crap down there, but for some reason up here, um, you know, we're letting them interfere with elections and giving money to the Trudeau Foundation, uh, which is the latest story to break. So you remember that he went on that vacation. And again, you know, all these guys
guys, you know, they deserve to go on vacation. The vacations always can't cost more because there's security and there's uh, protocol. I get it. I get it. I get it. But you know what? Pay for your own trip. He did pay for the airline tickets, but that's the small, small end of this. And at the end of the day, it's not so much that he was staying in what a seven to thousand, uh, seven to nine thousand dollar a night villa. It costs the taxpayers one hundred and sixty-two thousand dollars. It's that he's staying at places that are uh, owned or uh, affiliated with people who have made large donations to the Trudeau Foundation. So here we go again. Uh, the outlet reported that the Trudeau family stayed at a, luxur- a luxurious estate belonging to a wealthy family friend who made a large donation two years ago to the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation. You know, the Prime Minister stood up in the uh, House of Commons today and he started yelling at Pierre Polyever about that whole Twitter thing uh, because they labeled CBC government funding, which it is, uh, and said you had to get your big U.S. billionaire friend there as opposed to what? Your big Chinese Communist Party billionaires that donate to your foundation interfere in elections. Thank you very much. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And how can you not just shake your head at this person? It is unbelievable. A second generation prime minister born with several silver spoons in the mouth has absolutely no idea what you and I are going through on a regular basis. Enough of the freak show. Enough of the sunny ways and socks. We need a manager of this country, not a Walmart greeter. We need someone who knows how to run the store, not how to tell you how to get to the washroom. And that's what we got. His father, an academic, whether you like this politics or not. His mother, a bit of a free spirit. Which one do you think he's more like? I've had professors on this radio station, on this show, call him everything from a lightweight to vacuous professors of political science i think we're finally seeing that that the country is actually being run by a bunch of people in the prime minister's office who are all his friends can we please please just get on with leading the country uniting people instead of dividing them on that note ontario place is undergoing a refurb listen quickly this is uh the premier uh, talking about bringing down the science center and making uh ontario place the site of a entertainment hub our plan to bring ontario place back to life is a perfect example of what i mean when i talk about team ontario when we have government Businesses, indigenous groups, unions, and industry all coming together, sharing a vision. There's nothing we can't accomplish. There you have it. So um, big changes coming to Ontario Place. Lots of chat. It's been not, it's been down since 2012. Hard to believe. All right, lots of things to talk. I think we've had lists on like 14 times already this week. Uh, but man, it's been one. <laughs> it's been one of those weeks. Uh, lots going on in regard to Galen Weston, head of uh, Loblaw, sort of uh, I guess stepping out of the line of fire, you might say, and also the Twitter CBC thing uh, as well. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. 
always when I talk with you, Scott. Let's all right. So today. All right. Here we go. I'm sure we'll end with a flare. Uh, Loblaws. Let's talk about that. And Galen Weston. We've talked about this before, how he's the guy front and center. And it's all good and f- when it was warm and fuzzy. But then when grocery prices and people started uh, going through the roof and, and people started uh, really, you know, having trouble, uh, then the tide kind of turned. I w- it was listening to uh, Sylvain Charlebois, professor at Dalhousie Food Guy. And he was saying that he just wanted to get out of the line of fire. What are your thoughts here? Oh, I 100% agree. Now, remember, he did step into the role after their CEO, I think it was Sarah Davis, retired from the job, and that was in 2021. So I think, Scott, that it was always an interim position. But you know what? Galen was always the friendly face. You know, he was the uh, insider's buyer's guide, you know, for Loblaws and uh yeah, he was always that one presenting sort of the good news for the consumer to Loblaws for, for many, many years. And, you know, COVID hit and inflation skyrocketed and he didn't become the good news guy anymore. He became sort of like, you know, the bad news guy and the one that was on the firing line. So, you know, you live by the sword, you die by the sword, Scott. You can be in front and center in front of the cameras and and absolutely love the spotlight until it turns on you. And inevitably, in these types of high-profile positions, especially that depend on economic factors that uh, can uh, unduly affect your consumer base, got to take the good with the bad. And honestly, I know that they've been doing this um, search for quite a while now. I guess it's last August. And I think as what Galen is thinking, uh, couldn't happen soon enough. Uh, on one hand, can we look at this as bad PR because they didn't pivot? Remember back to the day when people were having a tough time and it was no names, Dave Nickel or Nichols, who stood up and said, we're going to help you. We're going to make this better. We're going to give you something at a lower price. Why didn't he go that angle? You know what? I don't know. And I think it was mainly how the numbers were probably running, although I don't think that Loblaws was going to run out of money anytime soon. And they were unsure as to how much their supply chains would be disrupted. They were unsure as how much they would have to pay for certain staples. So I guess from financial prudency, you know, it's hard to say, okay, well, let's just dial it all back, folks, and we'll take the hit wherever we want to be. So, you know, it's a publicly traded company. You've got to think about your shareholders. Uh, and that's what they do. And that's what I guess I was just do. I guess I was just surprised they didn't focus more on their discount brands in order to put this behind them, right? You know, change the channel. There was no real empathetic tone. And as no. you and I both know that they were always sort of reactive and on their heels going, well, it's not our fault. Well, what can we do? Well, we're paying more for the stuff. And then, you know, you find out what his bonus was. So there was not as much as a, of a empathetic tone and in, in their narrative and in their messaging. And I really feel that that sort of um, bit them. I don't think that people are stopping shopping at Loblaws, but I think that Loblaws has to take a bit of a step back and really consider their narrative from the consumer's point of view and go from there. Uh, I was just about to ask you, now what? So I'm guessing nobody will replace him. It'll be just a generic sort of commercial campaign type of thing? Well, I mean, there is somebody who's going to be stepping in to take his, if you're, if that's the Role, question, yeah. to take his job. So there will be somebody coming in that they've gotten from a, a, a large Danish food entity, a supermarket entity, who will be coming in. I mean, listen, do you think Galen is going away quietly into the night? No. He's just going no. to sort of slip away into the darkness and uh, step into the booth and pull all the levers from there. All right. So got to talk about CBC and Twitter. Twitter, after a uh, email from Pierre Polyevra, uh, 
Elon Musk. Uh, this is a government funded, uh, this is government funded media. That is the logo. I guess they've changed it now, or that is the description. They changed that now to 69%, uh, government, uh, sponsored media. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? In a, in a sense, it is. So what are your thoughts? Well, it is. You I won't say it isn't. I think that this is, uh, I think that inside the conservative offices and, and their, their inner circle, they're all joined hands and they're dancing a jig because they feel that they've really um, done something for Canadians to say uh, to today to expose the CBC as a government-funded entity. I think this is a sort of an internal win. I honestly don't think that that's going to move the ticker and get people to you know, uh, consider Pierre Polyever as the next prime minister. I, I think that this is something that will certainly give him the headlines for today and that it will be gone by tomorrow. I mean, it bears saying. What about separating Pierre Polyever from this? Because, like, he just started it and then he, you know, he's run away. He's 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 letting the fire just burn. At the end of the day, I don't think this many people uh, objected when there were people saying to fund the police, as there are saying, you know, what he's talking about defunding uh, the CBC. Uh, Pierre Poly- Polyevra aside, whether it helps or, or 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 doesn't help him, has this not just created another situation? Because really, we have you know a very very old traditional monolithic model of, of media, which we know is very quickly falling by the wayside, and the only way that can sustain itself is through is through uh, government funding and such. So, where does Twitter and CBC go from here? I think that you know I think that people really take what Elon Musk does on Twitter with a grain of salt, Scott. I don't think people have a, as huge respect for Elon Musk as they did before. And he's sort of like sitting there throwing tantrums once a day and deciding to uh, pick on who he thinks he can pick on. I mean, that's how I see Elon Musk. At one point, you th- you know, this is a great visionary. He's developed the electric electro car. He's done this. He's done that. He's Alyssa, his, his rocket is sitting on a st- uh, launch pad right now and NASA is ready to send it around the moon. So I mean, this okay, is he, you know he's what? part Elon he's Musk part he's about- part of the he's part of going to Mars and such. So, okay. you know, on, as wacky on, as he is, as wacky as he is with Twitter, let's be honest, he's he's a visionary guy. He's not he because is, he's doing Elon silly Musk things like this. He's not about yeah. the greater good. Elon Musk is about Elon Musk. That's the end. And that's the be all and end all period. Mike drop point blank. So whatever Elon Musk does is not necessarily for the greater good, but it has to really benefit him somehow. And that's how he operates. And that's worked for him. But I still think that in terms of his reputation and in terms of how we took over Twitter and what he's done and how he's decimated the platform, it's um, I think that people really, you know, still think about that. And honestly, unless Elon Musk does something like, you know, going up to the moon and deciding to fall back to Earth without a parachute, you know, maybe people would pay attention to that. But honestly, this is just another day where Elon Musk is sort of like throwing spaghetti against the wall and seeing what sticks. All right. As they light the fuse to the big rocket. Alyssa Freeman with us, PR and pop culture <laughs> expert. Oh, I like the way that ended. Thank you, Elisa. Uh, Alicia. Oh, Alicia. Okay, Alicia. I'll give you I'm, that one. All right. Uh, uh, thank you so much, Miss Freeman. It is. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We've been talking, haven't uh, talked to Parker Gallant for a while uh, and have uh, extensively over the last uh, decade or so in regard to wind power, solar power as Ontario embarked on renewables and such. So let's get a bit of an an update here. Parker Gallant is with us, retired banker and energy analyst, uh, uh, analyzing Ontario and Canada in his blog, Parker Gallant Energy Perspectives, and is with us now. Parker, Thanks for the time. Hope you're well. 
I am well. Nice to hear from you, Scott. It's yeah, it's been, it has been a while. And what we were talking quite a bit during the throes of all of this in the wind government and such. Where are we now? As you sit back and you, and you look at this experiment and how it has gone over time, we obviously hit pause there for a bit. Where are we with this industry now? No further ahead, but the taxpayers are picking up a lot of the costs now. I mean, the, the uh, Ford government, when it got in, increased what uh, Kathleen Wynne had sort of set aside uh, to keep our rates at a reasonable level, and uh, it's picked up a lot more, another $3 billion or so. So in total, uh, I just, you know, the budget that was released last month uh, had $6.5 billion being absorbed by the taxpayers to basically help out to help keep your electricity rates lower. So that's how he's helping out. They really haven't done much as far as I'm concerned to change the system or, you know, uh, or get rid of those nasty contracts. They've left them alone, basically. Would it cost more to get rid of them than what they're worth? I mean, uh, how, how could they have done this or how can they do it all better? It's hard to know. I mean, you know, I've talked to a few people who said they, you know, they could have changed the regulations or passed the law that may have amended those contracts because I think the contracts are iron tight. The wind and solar uh, uh, people that own them uh, basically get first to the grid rights. So they rank ahead of almost every other uh, generation source we've got in the province. And, and that's crazy because uh, all they do is they, tend to generate energy when it's on, you know, quite often when it's not needed, particularly wind. Wind is, right now, it's booming like crazy uh, mm. because, uh, you know, the spring is always a windy part of our year. And so the wind is blowing, but our demand is really low at this time of year because we don't have the air conditioners on yet. We don't have that mm. heat, you know, cranked up or anything else. So. What that means is that, uh, you know, if wind is crank, is going like crazy, generating electricity in the middle of the night or solar in the middle of the day, and we don't need the power, that means we got to do something with it. We either sell it to our neighbors or give it away to our neighbors, basically, or we curtail it. And, you know, that means we pay for it no matter what happens. And I, I was looking at a couple of recent days uh, just, you know, last week, and, and uh, my God, we were, I mean, basically we were exporting you know, almost all of the generation that uh, wind turbines were, were generating at the time, and we basically were giving it away, and it was costing us, uh, I figured, for what we actually used in the province, uh, uh, over $2,000 a megawatt uh, hour, or, you know, $2 a kilowatt hour, so it was really crazy. And I've looked the last couple of days, and it's the same thing. The wind is really blowing like, like mad and generating electricity that we don't need. Uh, many, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Many are talking about, you know, we're seeing the EV production that's going to happen in the area, and that's the next thing and such. Some have said that we may not have enough. What are your thoughts? Well, uh, if the full electrification thing goes on, yeah, we don't have enough. Um, and, and, but the big question is, are our EVs going to overtake the sale of ICE vehicles? I have my doubts myself. I just don't think it's going to happen. And uh, particularly with the cost of, of those uh, electric vehicles versus the cost of an ICE. And on top of that, um, we need all those critical materials. Uh, 
uh, as well to, to manufacture batteries and everything else. And between the, the Ford government uh, and the uh, federal government, they're throwing money at, you know, uh, Volkswagen is supposed to be getting billions and, you know, Ford, GM, Chrysler have all got uh, hundreds of, of millions of dollars to support their move to, you know, uh, generate and manufacture electric vehicles here. Uh, and, you know, it's just we're throwing money in something that I think is really foolish. But, what have we uh, learned? It's my opinion. What have we learned over the so many years of, of wind generation, solar generation, renewables? Cause we know that that was a big push and, and we're, we're moving forward with that. But what have we learned from where we are about what we've already done? What we should have learned is that, uh, by, by taking on wind and solar, that they are very intermittent in the way they generate power. I mean, if the wind's not blowing, there's no generation coming from them. And the same thing with the sun. If the clouds are overhead, uh, you know, we're not generating any solar power. And I, I just had a recent example uh, that I looked at, and, and uh, it was a Wall Street Journal article about Texas. And if you remember back in, in 2021, Texas had a big freeze and mm-hmm. the state, and they were without power for a long time. I think 200 people died from the cold. It was quite a disastrous thing. And so the state legislation apparently has just passed a, 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 a law saying that they're going to subsidize gas turbine plants now because hmm. um, they're worried about if it happens again that they, they need a gas generation uh, to you know, provide the power that's not there from the wind and solar. And so they're throwing, I think it's $11 billion, that's U.S. dollars, um, to subsidize uh, new gas plants. They're going to get, they're going to put in about, uh, I think it was 10,000 megawatts of capacity, which is enough to uh, basically uh, supply, I think it was 2 million Texas homes. So, I mean, that's the problem we're getting into is that, um we're basically layering on the cost as far as electricity supply. And, you know, we've done it here in Ontario, as I said, but taxpayers are picking up $6 billion of that now. But, I mean, it's getting worse and worse. Uh, you know, if we think we can live without uh, natural gas, uh, we're, we're fooling ourselves. Uh, we've certainly seen that with uh, DeFasco here in Hamilton talking about electrifying steelmaking op- operations to get rid of coal. And then after the prime minister left about a month later, uh, Enbridge reminded everybody we're going to need a massive natural gas line down there uh, to do exactly what you're talking about. How important is it that this is involving all hands on deck, all layers of energy in order s- to support this, like whether it's a portable nuclear uh, uh, generation or natural gas well uh, um, that's what i said my view is that what we're what what the politicians seem to be doing is just simply layering on the cost so you know uh the fact of the matter is, is that i was looking at tapasco and uh, they got uh, penalized for uh, uh i don't know what it, what it was they were doing but ieso basically are going to be collecting i think it's 5.9 million dollars from them but in the meantime, DeFasco, because they're converting their steel plant, are going to be handed $900, billion, I mean, $900 million by the province and, and the federal government to uh, complete that tra- transformation. So it's, you know, as I said, all we're doing is 
building up costs and, and adding it to the taxpayer's burden or the ratepayer's burden. And uh, I don't know, you know, some at some point in time, uh, it's going to reach the point where, you know, uh, industries will not want to do anything in the developed world because it's not just Canada, it's Europe and it's all of most of the U.S. states that have, have moved in the same direction. And what we're doing is driving all this business to India and to China, you know, and so eventually the jobs will go as well. Parker Parker Gallant with us, retired Canadian banker and energy analyst uh, through Ontario and Canada. You can follow his blog at Parker Gallant uh, Gallant Energy Perspectives. Parker, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Well, thank you very much, Scott, for having me. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. You remember we were chatting uh, with Franco Terrazano when the prime minister was staying in a $6,000 a night room along the beautiful Thames River for the funeral of Queen Elizabeth. That was when he remember the shot of him singing Bohemian Rhapsody in the uh, hotel lobby. You know, if I'm staying in a $6,000 a night hotel uh, room, you're not seeing me in the lobby, man. I'm going to be up there the whole time. Anyway, uh, now he his uh, journey to Jamaica is under scrutiny. This happened over the Christmas holidays. Uh, it has cost the taxpayers at least $162,000. Now, you know, the guy's got to take a holiday. He's got to have stab, all that stuff. I get it. Um, but w- what also gets me here is here is another link to the Trudeau Foundation because the people that own the villa are donors to the Trudeau Foundation. You scratch my back, I scratch yours. Here we go again. Franco Terrazano with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director. Franco, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am. Thanks for having me on today. Is this more of the same, Franco? Well, you know, the first thing that really jumps on me, I mean, there's there's two issues here, right? The, the whole, is this a conflict of interest? You know, did the ethics commissioner know about the donations to, to the Trudeau Foundation? It, we need to find that information out, right? That's the obvious issue. But I think really the most important issue here is the cost. At least $162,000 for a family vacation, December 26th to January the 4th. And apparently that that includes... I think think everyone has a right to go on vacation. And okay, I understand that the prime minister uh, of a country is going to need some security. But we're talking about $115,000 at least for security. Then another $47,000 to pay for the flight crew and, and the Privy Council office. And apparently you had government employees that were staying at an all-inclusive hotel near the estate. So it's just really hard to believe to me um, that the government couldn't find out a way to allow a prime minister to go on vacation for less than $162,000. And, you know, at least when the staff stays at the all-inclusive, Franco, the food's free. You got to look at it that way. No, 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 no. Ah, the silver lining. But look, you know, I know you're I know you're joking, uh, but this is it's such an eye watering tab. Like, how can the government not figure out a way? To send the prime minister on vacation for a like for a family vacation for under one hundred sixty two thousand dollars, and this isn't the first time we've seen the eye watering tab for these types of vacations. Um, we all remember the trip to the uh, what was it the Aga Khan's um, yeah uh, to visit the Aga Khan back in what twenty sixteen uh, in the Bahamas. Well, that was more than two hundred thousand dollars. 
What about the family trip in 2019 around the Christmas holidays to Costa Rica? Well, that was close to $200,000. You mentioned the $6,000 per night hotel room during the Queen's funeral. Um, what about the Governor General's trip to the Middle East? One week, more than a million dollar hit to the taxpayer. Uh, we sent the largest delegation of any G7 country to the to the 2021 climate conference in the United Kingdom. We ended up spe spending an extra $3,000 on luxury chauffeur service because the finance minister stayed in the wrong city. So something's got to give here, right? All we hear from this government is huge tabs for international trips. And it's hard to believe that the government couldn't find a way to do these things for a more affordable option. And let's not forget, the guy's loaded. He can pay a lot of this themselves. I don't expect him to pay for anything government-related, but certainly for the family. Uh, but I guess they have friends there, so, you know, they're giving him dinner and such. What about the coronation of the king? Do we know anything about that? What's coming there? Well, I have no clue what the total bill is going to be. You can bet you can bet that the Canadian Taxpayers Federation is going to be filing a ton of access to information requests to get the get the final tab. Um, but to your point, I mean, Mr. Trudeau, as our prime minister, makes three hundred and ninety thousand dollars a year, just under. He's taken four pay raises since the beginning of the pandemic. So. I don't see why Canadian taxpayers who have been struggling, 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 struggling with inflation, with years of a pandemic and government restrictions, with an economy that might be heading into a recession. I don't understand how the prime minister wouldn't, you know, look outside of his taxpayer funded mansion and realize that it's probably a bad time to go on a family vacation that will cost his constituents, Canadians, one hundred and sixty thousand, one hundred and sixty thousand dollars. Franco Terrazano with us, Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Federal Director, uh, the Trudeau's vacation in Jamaica now under scrutiny, not only for the cost, but uh, it's owned by a Trudeau Foundation donor. Franco, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks for having me on. Great piece in the National Post today by Tasha Kiridin. Woke CBC dividing Canadians on the public dime. Trudeau and Polly Ever fueling the extremes of the CBC debate. And most Canadians would be better off if they stopped. Uh, and of course, this about, uh, the CBC, uh, Twitter account, which is now put a, has a label on it. Thanks to Elon Musk. And I guess a note from Pierre Polly And it now says CBC at CBC, 69% government funded media which I guess it is. To talk more about all of this, Tasha Kiridin, uh, and, and she, of course, uh, wrote the article, Principal at Navigator and Author of the Right Path. Tasha, thanks for the time. Brilliant piece. I uh, hope you're doing well. Oh, thank you so much. Yes, I am. Thanks. So why is this story generating so much attention? Uh, is this because it's Canadiana or because this is uh, an old model, because it is, uh, uh, well, you tell me, why is this generating so much interest? <laughs> the reason I'm asking this is, you know, when people started talking about defunding the police, nobody cared, but you defund the CBC, look out. Oh, you know, I think. See, defending the police is a live one, too. But defending the CBC is because it's been so politicized. It's been intensely politicized. Uh, it was a battle cry of Pierre Polyev during the leadership. It got his crowds to their feet. I, I witnessed this firsthand. That was one of the lines that, you know, defund the CBC. So um, when these labels came out, he took it upon himself to do a stunt and ask Elon Musk to label it government-funded media. What does that mean? Well, the government-funded piece implies there's an editorial control by government of some kind. And that's what CBC objects to. They left Twitter over that because they said they're not. Well, the truth is they technically are because they're regulated by the Broadcasting Act. 
which says that they have a mandate and the mandate includes, um, you know, highlighting stories that otherwise wouldn't get to the fore from all over Canada, being representing Canada, representing a certain vision of Canada. And this is where it gets tricky because, you know, there's nobody calling CBC or CBC calling the government saying, hey, like, what should we say today, uh, Justin Trudeau, about what you did? Like, there's no there's no control in that sense. But there's a mandate that colors the way they represent things. And that is over time a very left liberal mandate. And it's, it attracts people who share that view. And it's not the view that Pierre Polyev has of what Canada is or what the conservatives do. So they say it's biased. Uh, so that's where that's where we're at in the conversation. Instead of looking at it and saying, okay, we have a CBC. It does mean a lot to a lot of people. But what should it look like going forward? The media landscape's changed, as we all know. And what's its what what should it be doing? Is it giving us value or is it representing just one side of the equation? Those are the conversations, you know. But instead, we're we're in a, tw- a tempest in a tweet pot, as I said. <laughs> is is the CBC help with any of this? With their president taking shots at uh, candidates? Now, you know, obviously yeah. the candidate has taken a shot at them, but it's a different it's a different ball game. Right. And this is the thing. It's true. Absolutely true. Um, that their, their president has gone around. She has been on, on various media taking shots at Polyev defending because the conservatives, you know, they, it's a lot of clickbait. They'll again send out letters saying, give us a donation to fight the media party and the terrible CBC and the money pours in. So they use this as a, as a weapon and they, they try and tarnish all media with it, but specifically CBC is their biggest target. So of course you've seen that. Um, but CBC also doesn't help itself. Like I did a look, a look at what CBC programming is, you know, before I wrote the piece, cause I don't, I don't watch CBC a ton. I just, I hear, a, you know, I, the news piece I see, but um, you know, when you go to their website, for example, their gem series has a piece on climate change or lots of documentaries. There's not a single one there about things like carbon capture in Alberta or efforts being made to, you know, mitigate effects of carbon intensive industries. There's everything is negative. Everything is, you know, Greta Thunberg is great. There's a whole doc on her. Like it's very one-sided. We go to some of their news stories too. Very one-sided representation of certain issues, issues in education, for example, issues around gender. It's very, very one-sided and they don't present arguments, rational arguments, some of them as to why these issues are not being necessarily treated fairly or why we feel that, that all views aren't represented. So this is the problem is a lot of Canada feels left out. And so it's very easy for Pierre Polyev to say, oh, gee, let's get rid of it. Right. And then you have Justin Trudeau jumping into the fray and saying that, you know, you shouldn't run to American billionaires. And, and like it just becomes a political football instead of a serious issue. Why is the like, honestly, Tasha, there's nothing new here. I've been in this industry for 40 yeah. years <laughs> and we were saying this 40 years ago, long before a pandemic, long before Justin Trudeau. Uh, uh, that being said, uh, why are we so now upset about this? It seems as if uh, were people not aware that this was Funded by the Canadian government. I think we all knew that, didn't we? Uh, well, we knew that. I think the issue is really, it's its a few things. I mean, you know, Elon Musk is a lightning rod for a lot of people. He's mm-hmm. been dragged into this because he now owns Twitter. So he's, you know, he's the one who put the labels on. He responded, it's 69%, not 70%, you know, making a crude joke. And so this is getting people all, you know, uh, upset and saying that this is true. Are you insinuating, things, are you insinuating, Tash, it's not a mathematical, uh, <laughs> he didn't write that mathematically? <laughs> is that what you're insinuating? I anything. I just, you go draw your own conclusions there. But, <laughs> you know, it's, it's the kind of thing that, it, you know, there's a lot of stuff in here that people will pay attention to for all sorts of reasons. Um, so people are paying attention to it. Like you said, it's, it's been around. This, this conversation is old. I remember 
talking about defunding the CBC back in like policy conferences of the Progressive Conservative Party in the early 90s. And I remember Perrin Beattie, who was then, I think, either heritage or culture, whatever it was called at the time. But he was the minister in charge of the CBC. And he came out and said, never will we get rid of defund the CBC. But, you know, this conversation's been had for a long time. And I think it's because the media landscape has changed so much. And so now you have a public broadcaster. Yeah. If the CBC were private and it, it's, it had this programming, no one would care. But it's the problem is it's being funded by private money, a public money. So people say, well, I'm paying for it. I want to see myself in it. I don't see myself in it. So why should I be paying for it? And that's the argument. The CBC has to figure out what it is. We have to figure out what we want from it. Do we want a public broadcaster? Do we want to transition it to private? I mean, I wouldn't get rid of it overnight. There's, you know, there's 7,500 people who work there. There's a lot of people who do like it. There's different arms of it. The French is very different, by the way, in Quebec. Like, Radio Canada is a very different animal than CBC English. And I think you can't treat the two the same. So... All this has to be talked about and so that we don't spend like a billion dollars a year. You're right on, on something that gets people divided instead of united. Tasha Kiernan with us, principal at Navigator, author of The Right Path, the latest in the National Post. Tasha, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Uh, we certainly know who the uh, president and CEO of, uh, certainly president of uh, Loblaws, Galen Weston. You've seen him on TV and, and standing up in the, in the public face of the company. And then, of course, the pandemic hit and profits for the uh, grocery stores went up and our spending, uh, our, our uh, ability to spend and be efficient uh, uh, obviously went down, our spending ability went down and a lot of people pointed at Galen Weston why especially as he got a raise through all of this now he has stepped out of the spotlight he's still in the building uh, but he's certainly uh, not at the front desk anymore at reception he's not the first people first person that everybody will see to talk more about this move and why now Marvin Ryder with us professor at Groot School of Business McMaster University and with us now Marvin thanks for the time I hope you're well I'm great glad to be with you so your thoughts on this, obviously, Galen Weston has, has taken a lot of uh, uh, flack lately because of the profits that are being made. We've talked about that uh, extensively over the last little while. Are you surprised? Why now is this happening? Well, actually, if I can help you out a little bit first, he's not going anywhere. He'll still be the guy you see when you walk in for the rest of this year. Now, he's going to be mm-hmm. going in 2024. But if I take you back to 2021, This is really where Galen stepped forward. The current CEO in 2021 retired. And what you would have normally done was taken the chief operating officer, made them the chief executive officer. But this nice gentleman said, well, look, I'm going to retire in two years. That doesn't make any sense. So the board turned to Galen and said, look, Galen, you're the largest shareholder in this. Your family is the largest shareholder in this. Why don't you step forward? And we now know temporarily become the CEO of the Loblaw companies. And when this is all said and done next year, he's going to go back to what he did before all of that, which was to be chair of the board and to be the the CEO of the parent company, the holding company above all this. So he stepped forward. He became the face of this. You have to remember 2021, we were in the depths of COVID. That was probably not a good time to do a search for a CEO. So he reluctantly came forward, became that. And now he's handing the reins to a fellow named a pair bank, I believe is how you pronounce it, or bunk. Uh, he's from Denmark. He's going to join the company in 2024. But also by announcing this today, 
he will clearly be involved in the search for a new chief operating officer, and those two will take the company forward starting in 2024. So as a publicly traded company, as soon as you figure this out, you owe it to everyone who tell the people this, all the shareholders, what have you, to let them know. But he's not actually going anywhere. You'll still see him in those insider reports for the rest of this year. Well, so he, we will still see him on TV for the rest of the year in the RADs? Absolutely. Yeah, he'll still be the, the, the person that you go to. Now, I'm even going to give you another little odd spin on all this. You're absolutely right. He got a raise last year. The board said, look, we're not paying the CEO enough money, one, $1.2 or $1.3 million. I have a funny feeling that when they were searching for a new CEO, they found they had to pay that position more. And he mm. said, let's do it while I'm here. Let me take the heat for this so that when the new person comes in, this doesn't doesn't bog them down as they try to go forward. Uh, so I, I think this is all part of a transition plan that started in 2021 and will end in 2024. Interesting. Was this temporary unless it worked? No, I don't think so. Galen, Galen had been very clear that he was reluctantly going to become the CEO. I think right. he was much happier doing the strategic things of a, a board chair and what have you. Uh, his, his background really wasn't one to sort of step out in front of everything. But look, if that's what we need to do to get us through, he, he rose to the occasion. But I think he's very much looking forward to going back to be more anonymous chair of the board and let Mr. Bank uh, take uh, front and center. Obviously, he became a target during these times of inflation, food inflation and such. Um, but I remember back in, I think we talked about this many years ago, uh, Dave Nickel and the no-name brand, he kind of used the same sort of time, but uh, talked about the discount products and how great they were. Should Galen have maybe taken that angle in these ads? Well, again, remember that the, the no-name products were the ones that they froze last fall for a yep. period of three months. They said, we're not going to increase those prices, tens of thousands of these products in the stores that we're not going to change. I, I actually don't think he's done that badly. And here's why. Unfortunately, when I say the word Loblaws to you, you think of the grocery stores, but the Loblaws group also includes all of the shopper drug mart. And that came in because of Galen's work, all of the financial stuff through President's Choice Bank. And there are literally millions of Canadians who use this online banking system. That's why taken together, the Loblaws companies are a 43 billion, that's with a B, $43 billion enterprise. And that has grown massively uh, while Galen was both chair of the board and over the last couple of years as CEO. So I don't really think he's done that badly. Now, yes, there's that negative halo, A, about the raise and B, about why are we paying all this much more money for groceries? But the same argument, I don't actually shop at Loblaws, to be perfectly honest. I shop at the Metro chain. I've occasionally shopped at the Sobeys chain. They're all equally to blame or equally blameless, however you want to look at it. He just, because he's his last name is Weston and one yeah. of the biggest families going in Canada, I think that's why he became the lightning rod. So now this company has a new opportunity, a new CEO coming in, moving forward. How do they position this? How do they create a positive? Well, in a way, I don't think they want to change anything. It has been very successful. Again, whether it's Shoppers Drug Mart or the Loblaws companies or, or the financial companies, the challenge for Per, per Bank coming in from Denmark is how do you keep the darn thing growing? You know, if it's 43 billion now, we'd like it to grow to 50 billion or 60 billion or 70 billion. Chances are he's not going to be able to do that just through what we call organic growth of the core business. 
So I won't be shocked to see if in a year or two, Loblaws does another strategic acquisition, just like uh, Canadian Tire is more than just Canadian Tire. Today, they've got Mark's Work Warehouse and, and Sport Check. I won't be shocked to see if Loblaws gobbles up a couple more down the road. Uh, does that mean we will not see any more competition in the grocery business moving forward? Actually, I think the answer is no, other than at the, at the one end, which is sort of the gourmet or specialty end. As we become more uh, interested in, say, ethnic foods or become interested in vegan products or artisanal products, these are something that the big chains can't compete against. So you'll still see people fighting in that segment. But for the basic food staples that you and I need to buy, sugar or bread or milk or coffee, I think uh, you've, got, you've got your group right now. This is no different than telecommunications where you have four big players. I think you've got the same kind of four big players in groceries. And that's about it for the time being. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at a group school of business, McMaster University, Galen Weston stepping down, uh, but still very much involved in the company of Loblaws. Marvin, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. I will. Thank you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, if you're on your way home, you might want to stop and fill up. Gas is going up $0.08 cents a liter at midnight tonight. It's a seasonal thing to talk about it. Dan McTagg is with us, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, and is with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, I'm doing great, and thanks for having me, uh, Scott. It, it, is this all about the switch to summer? And we talk about this every six months or so. Is this all about the switch to summer gas? Yes, it is. And, you know, I there's only one other radio station. I won't mention them in Toronto, uh, but they have some uh, person they keep trotting out who says, I can't figure this out. This shouldn't have happened. Well, it did happen because uh, <laughs> the winter spec gasoline disappeared on markets as of yesterday. And the difference in that price on those same U.S. markets was uh, 25.5 cents a gallon, which when you break that down by 3.78541 multiplied by the Canadian dollar, which was uh, 133.62 uh, to buy one U.S. dollar, works out to about uh, 7, 6.5, uh, 6.7, 6.8 cents a liter. When you add the HST on top of that uh, and you go to the nearest nine-tenths, that's eight cents a liter. Bob's your uncle. So I don't know where these folks call themselves experts or whatever. Uh, it's not even professional courtesy. If you don't know what you're talking about, maybe some people ought not to be in the business of trying to predict gas prices. Nevertheless, uh, your listeners were able to take advantage of this prediction yesterday. So they've known uh, many of them for almost 24 hours. Uh, and that's given them 48 hours before, or at least 36 hours before any impending change. But it is definitely the result of the switchover from winter, cheaper to make gasoline to more expensive to make summer uh, blends. Uh, and uh, part of that, of course, we've seen them go up five, six cents a liter, but this time a lot more given the cost of alkylates, a very important component in that, uh, in that mix of summer blends. Uh, as you mentioned, this happens every single year. Is it more this year, or is it roughly the same as it always is? No, it's uh, about five cents more, four cents more than what it normally is, roughly. I mean, it, it varies between, I've seen as little as four cents, and I've seen as high as six cents, but eight cents, that was a lot higher. And it would have been 11 cents, uh, Scott, where not for the fact that we saw uh, those same gasoline markets out of the New York Harbor uh, shed some pretty serious numbers 
such that we saw gasoline, for instance, drop about uh, almost eight cents a gallon yesterday, good enough for a two and a half cent uh, liter decrease. Uh, when you average this out and round it all off, you want up with an eight cent decrease, not an eleven cent decrease. Um, so it could have been a lot worse. As I mentioned, the big difference, so your listeners understand, is that during the winter we use butane in gasoline because mm-hmm. it ignites better, uh, and that's what you want in colder conditions. It's not as volatile in colder conditions, but in warmer conditions, you don't want to have uh, fuel with uh, significant volatility, especially in response to higher temps. So you want to put uh, something that's a little more uh, tempered, something that keeps gasoline uh, you know, in check, and that is, of course, alkylates, and the cost of alkylates has doubled compared to last year. Uh, let's change gears a little bit here, Dan. We, we see the U.S., what they're up to, and, and obviously uh, a bigger polluter than Canada and have a bit more catch-up to do to us, but are still very much renewable uh, front and center. But, st- but uh, on the other hand, have a very different approach to fossil fuels and still taking advantage of them to, to get us off much dirtier, dirtier fuels. If we had a change in government in Canada, is there much that can be done now to change direction of where we're going or how we're doing things at all? Would that matter, or has the time gone by? Well, I think the government has probably uh, overcommitted Canada to objectives it knows it can't meet. And certainly, if it does try to meet those, it will do so by bringing the country's economy to its knees and making, as we're now seeing with food and fuel and other prices, you know, the intolerable impact uh, of, of higher uh, cost of living. So... I, I don't think it's ever too late to pull these things back, but understand one thing, and this is this was true of my time serving under Jean Cadet and Paul Martin. It was always well known that Canada, long before it was cool and trendy and climate uh, friendly to go out and uh, shut uh, coal plants down, we did that. We did that back in the late 90s, early 2000s, yep. where we shut down coal plants, sh- shifted over. Well, we had the nuclear fleet in Ontario, but we also mo- use a lot more natural gas. The Americans didn't decide to do that till much more recently, and as a result, they were able to meet their so-called climate goals, while Canada was left to say, all right, we can do even more. Well, how are you going to do that if the technology is not there? And believe me, as much as people want technology to be there, they want renewables to be there, they're not ready for prime time. They might work in a autoclave or they might work in a, as a widget, you know, in a, in a uh, you know, in a prototype scenario, but they do not work uh, to you know, to to meet the the needs of a, of an economy and a population who, at last I checked, is growing. This is something, by the way, analysts and uh, those who are looking at climate and all those sorts of other things on the emissions refuse to consider. Well, why is why is it that we have these taxes on you know carbon taxes and everything, and we our emissions are going up? It's because your population's growing. When you're bringing in four hundred to five hundred thousand people a year, and you continue to do that, of course you're going to have more consumption, and of course you're going to wind up uh, uh, not being able to meet those goals. You know, you bring up a very valid point, and I forgot about that. The coal fire generation here in Ontario got everyone off that with Canadian liquid natural gas. There was clearly a business case for that, yet. The Prime Minister doesn't see a business case for that in other parts of the world where the pollution is a lot heavier. <laughs> Look, you want to hear something funny. You don't have to go around the world to know the world wants more clean Canadian energy. It has the highest uh, per barrel ESG ratings. But 
you know, the groups and organization, I'll, re, I'll mention the Ontario Clean Air Alliance and uh, Gibbons and that group, Jack Gibbons, go around telling municipalities, since you've accepted the idea of uh, climate, uh, uh, of a climate emergency, you have to cut off natural gas plants. This is the same individual who 15, 20 years ago had coal plants shut down and had yeah. natural gas plants built instead. Now he wants them shut down. And that's going to cost you and I, oh, well, right now it's already costing you and I about six and a half billion dollars a year. That's what the province has to put on the books to pay for higher electricity mm-hmm. costs. I think it's really time we stop listening to green grifters. And more importantly, get a little bit more intelligence for our municipal, uh, municipalities, including Hamilton, which is one of, what, 30 cities that said, yeah, let's kill uh, natural gas plants. Look, if people are going to be stupid about their decisions, at least have the courtesy to understand what it is that you're doing. And if you happen to have been a councillor, you know, demanding the province uh, get away from natural gas plants, I tell you what, shut down your your uh, your all your uh, blast furnaces and your steel industry in Hamilton. See how long you survive as a councillor. Well, it was hilarious when Trudeau came in and said they were going to electrify DeFasco, and then a month later they said they're going to build a pipeline of natural gas down so they can make that. And they were all standing around going, you can't build it, as if they had no idea that this was going to happen. They have no idea that it would take natural gas to get them off coal. I find that absolutely Apart mind-boggling. the fact that a lot of these guys hailed from the uh, McGinty yeah. win fiasco liberals, the ones that I know that are now running the show for Justin Trudeau were not considered the brightest uh, of the bunch. In fact, uh, many of us thought, well, it's good they're on the back bench. And here I'm referring not just to Justin Trudeau and Mark Holland and, uh, mm-hmm. and your, your, just, your, uh, your transport minister, but here they are running your country and making stupid decisions like this, looking like hypocrites. And uh, it would all be funny mm-hmm. not for the fact you and I and everyone else is now having to pay for this in paying a price most of us can't afford. Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. It's good to be here. Thanks again, Scott. Bye. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. U.S. law enforcement officials say this is part of a broader effort by Beijing to conduct clandestine operations without jurisdiction or diplomatic approval. Members of the U.S. Justice Department say more than 40 people are facing charges with all believed to be operatives of the Chinese government and part of a larger group that aims to influence global perceptions of China. In one case, two men were arrested in New York City where the suspects are said to have been operating an undeclared police station and are said to have deleted government conversations after the investigation began. We've been talking about this for months and years with Global's uh, Sam Cooper uh, and, of course, recently making its uh, way into the mainstream headlines. And there's the FBI, 40 charges pending, a secret Chinese Communist Party-operated police station like those we've seen across Canada or Europe in recent months have been identified and shut down by the FBI in New York. City. The Globe and Mail headline reads, FBI finds Canadian link in covert Chinese police station probe. And you're telling me uh, Mr. Biden isn't concerned about this when he came to visit Canada? Let's bring in Dr. Jack Cunningham, PhD program coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History in Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto, and with us now. Jack, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am, Scott. Good to be with you. So what are your thoughts on this now, Jack? I mean, we seem to be dancing around whether these even exist or not or whether they're offensive. Meanwhile, the FBI, they're, they're laying charges. Why the difference here? I don't think it uh, reflects well on the Trudeau government, which has, uh, has, has long been behind the curve on dealing with this, uh, this issue. Uh, it, ha- it was established last year 
by the NGO Safeguard Defender that there were these unofficial police stations in Europe, in the U.S., and in Canada. They identified three of them in the GTA, including a convenience store in Scarborough and a piece of commercial real estate in Markham. So it's uh, it's well established that they uh, that they exist in Canada, and we don't seem to be taking as skeptical a line as we should against the uh, against Beijing's claim that these are only places where Chinese expats can renew their driver's licenses. Uh, here we are talking about election interference and donations to Trudeau foundations and stuff. We're knee deep in this stuff, it seems, for the last several months, and yet it's the U.S. that are laying charges. Uh, how are Canadian officials going to react to the FBI and what they've done? Well, my hope is that they'll react by uh, getting uh, getting the lead out. I mean, it's uh, as, as, I, as I say, this has been well established as a phenomenon that exists in Canada as well as in the U.S., Presumably, they're doing the same sort of stuff in Canada that they're doing in the U.S., and it's been documented that, uh, that these uh, unofficial police stations or, uh, or bureaus uh, do, in fact, harass uh, Chinese dissidents and those who dare to criticize uh, Beijing's policies. The article in the Globe and Mail, uh, the headline reads, FBI finds Canadian link in covert Chinese police station probe. What is that link? Do we know? I think the link is that there are uh, there are stations in uh, in Canada and that they're doing the same sort of thing. I mean, it would be it would be naive to think that these police stations don't uh, stay in touch with one another and concert their efforts across borders. It appears, uh, and, and again, we don't know the exact detail of all charges. There's still some pending, but this is a pretty serious situation. We know that. But especially in the United States, these people could be uh, facing long prison sentences if these charges are, if they get convicted on these charges. They could, and uh, and they should, because this is a clear violation of uh, territorial sovereignty. Where do you see this going with the Canadian investigation? The RCMP says now they are working on this. Is there some sort of uh, something we can learn from the United States and how they share intelligence and how they uh, actually move with law enforcement? Apparently, CSIS and RCMP are just on completely different pages. We saw evidence of all of this in, 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 in the problem with lack of communication during the Freedom Convoy and such. What should Canada be doing to be acting on this more efficiently? What do what does CSIS and the RCMP need to do? Well, we should get rid of the stovepiping that pre- prevents uh, intelligence and law enforcement from uh, from cooperating where there are threats that uh, that are uh, are relevant in both their jurisdictions. That's the uh, the main problem, and it's uh, and it's one that you've already identified. Uh, one other question unrelated to the Trudeau Foundation. Uh, we're hearing more of the Prime Minister's travels over Christmas with his family uh, to Jamaica for a holiday. Nobody denies that, that of course, leaders need, need the time away, and there's costs with that and such. And a lot of people are raising uh, ire about the cost. But what about the fact that uh, this resort, this these villas were owned by people who have made donations to the Trudeau Foundation, a foundation that's also under scrutiny from receiving money from the Chinese Communist Party. Well, it certainly looks bad, and it doesn't reflect well on the uh, the Prime Minister's judgment. I think that uh, the Trudeau Foundation itself seems to be above board in its operations. The only thing you can criticize it for is a certain irritating wokeness 
And in that case, I think that its critics, such as Mr. Polyevra, are overstating their case. But still, it looks like a conflict of interest, and it's, uh, and it's foolish for the prime minister to persist in this sort of behavior since he's been caught out in it before. The issue of the Chinese police stations here in Canada, what do you think will come of this? Well, we've got this uh, special rapporteur who's been uh, been appointed. Maybe his uh, his remit will be expanded to uh, to include this phenomenon. Maybe we will actually end up with what some people are calling for a full scale public inquiry. But at the very least, I hope that the uh, the RCMP and CSIS uh, get their act together in dealing with the problem. Dr. Jack Cunningham with us, Ph.D. Program Coordinator at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History in Trinity College and the Monk School, University of Toronto. The issue, Chinese Communist Party operated police stations in Canada, Europe, and various other parts of the world. Now big arrests in the United States. Jack, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. All right, you uh, no doubt know the story about CBC and getting a label from Twitter, uh, courtesy of Elon Musk and uh, maybe some influence from Pierre Polyevra. And uh, on their CBC Twitter account, it says there's a label, 69% government-funded media. To talk more of all of this, the journalistic angle, Jeffrey Dvorkin with us, senior fellow at Massey College, former director of journalism at the University of Toronto Scarborough, author of Trusting the News in the Digital Age, and uh, sort of with the CBC still, I believe. Are you not, Jeffrey? No, no. Those days are gone. Oh, okay. Uh, so what are your thoughts on this story? Uh, I've been in the business for 40 years. Uh, there's not a lot new here. People have been talking. They were talking about this 40 years uh, ago. Why are we talking about it now? Well, I think that one of the issues is that the way that anything connected to the governments uh, seems to be less valued than it once was. And it puts all media organizations on the defensive. And the CBC has come under considerable attack from a variety of places. And so when someone from outside Canada um, his starts to say, well, there's something wrong with the way you're operating, it, it makes everybody nervous. Hmm. Um, in fact, the idea of government funding is everywhere in Canada and in the United States. And even uh, Elon Musk took billions of dollars from the American government in order to start up Tesla and his space program. So he's also can be accused of being a government-funded entity. But so there's a difference, just, Jeff. There's a difference, Jeff, between... Silliness. There's a difference, Jeff, between getting incentives or tax breaks or what have you, as opposed to your payroll relies on government donations. Your your payroll relies on on government contributions as opposed to advertising, which is the way most of the industry operates. Uh, again, this has been going on for uh, for 40 years. Um, are, are people upset to find this out? It's not like we didn't already know all this. Well, exactly. And I mean, it's the assumption is that somehow there's going to be some kind of editorial influence um, on a media organization wherever their money comes from. And whether it's advertising or government funding and the Canadian government is now prepared to support uh, media organizations, news organizations in Canada through the Canada Media Fund. Um, does this mean that if your organization uh, 
decides, oh, I'm sorry about this. Excuse me. Okay. Um, if you're, <laughs> it's been one of those days. I can um, imagine. If, if, if your organization accepts money from the federal government, what does that mean? Does that mean that you are now an agent of the Liberal Party? No, it means that these are difficult times for all media organizations, including this one. Um, And I think we just have to take a step back and say, let's show the public how well we're doing in presenting the news without fear or favor. That's when the important the, thing. When the president of the and I know you got to run, Jeff. Uh, when the president of the CBC comes out and criticizes uh, the conservative government, which of course criticizes them, but that's that's a different line. Um, does that help this conversation? Because it appears she is biased. It doesn't help. That's that's the that's the truth. Um, I come from a time where the heads of a, a corporation would not directly go after political people. They have, you know, they have minions who could do that for them. Yeah. Uh, but I think that was a big mistake on the part of Catherine Tate. I know you got to run, Jeff. Thanks so much. We will pick up with this later. Jeff Reed Vorkin with us, senior fellow Massey College, former director of journalism, University of Toronto, Scarborough, and author of Trusting the News in a Digital Age. Thank you, Jeff. Enjoy. Okay. You too. Cheers. All right. So, yeah, unfortunately, uh, Jeff has a million interviews today uh, because of this topic. And again, I, I think what's fascinating, it's like people got offended or people are offended because Twitter has put on the account, which they did on National Public Radio, uh, which they have uh, for uh, PBS as well, that 69% of the funding and the other 31% is from selling ads the way we all do. And, you know, Jeffrey's right that there's the Canadian Media Fund that is trying to help dilapidated media companies, you know, such as ours that just don't have the power that we once did because the revenue just isn't coming in, the ad revenue. Uh, whereas the CBC, they get that revenue. CBC Radio doesn't have commercials. TV does. But still, the majority of the money, if they didn't have government funded, and we're not talking incentives here, these are, are donations to the CBC from the government. I mean, that's been going on forever. It just simply wouldn't survive. So, uh, and I think the other thing that's fascinating is that that people are upset that Twitter has pointed out the obvious that it is government media. And, and you could say, well, you know, as Jeffrey, there still should be editorial, uh, an, ed- uh, an unbiased of, of editorial content there. And we know that just isn't true. And I mean, I guess every media outlet is guilty of having a bias you could say, but they're not government funded. That's the big difference. And again, for anybody to stand in front of now, I, I'm not sh- I, I can tell you right now, I'd be very surprised if all of a sudden somebody in the prime minister's office phones up the president of the CBC and says, I want a different angle taken on this. That doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. But the culture is there. And as I said, I've been in the media business for 40 years. And you can't tell me that the CBC is not left leaning and government supported uh, or government supportive when it's a liberal government. I mean, we've known that. I've known that since I got out of college. And it, again, nothing is different now than it was back then. It's just now the media has changed. And to, to have an organization like the CBC, it would not survive under its current model without that reinforcement from the government because the model is now archaic. Do great work. I'm not cutting down the CBC in any way. They do some fabulous work. I know some people that work there. Um, but but again, what they do 
uh, with their money and what they produce and what the private people do, uh, I, I mean, you're talking about much, much, much less resources in the private sector. So again, with the CBC and an old monolithic uh, uh, traditional uh, broadcast model, it wouldn't survive. It would, it would, it just simply wouldn't. So I think people don't want to necessarily get rid of the CBC, but I think they want to see it move back uh, towards a neutral stance and perhaps be more reminiscent of what we're seeing on PBS or, or wherever, uh, as opposed to just bidding for U.S. TV shows or whatever it is or sports. A better example. So, uh, you know, again, um, I don't know why anybody is surprised at this. It seems we're more, we're more chatty about defunding the CBC than we were when people were saying, well, let's defund the police. Nobody really took them to account, but yet with the CBC, we are. Um, again, we have two extremes here, uh, one on the right and one on the left, and one is our Prime Minister, the other one is Pierre Polyevra, and hopefully, hopefully, for the sake of Canada, and perhaps the CBC, will come to smarter senses in the centre. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Joining us now, Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. And he is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. You? So far, so good. Playoffs, Leafs tonight. Are you excited? You know, uh, we were talking about this on the show last <laughs> night. and, and You're I, not supposed to start with you know. Well, here's the thing, Scott. And again, we were talking about this on the show last night. I am of the age, and I think you're roughly the same age as I am. Yep. I am of the age. I was born... Uh, I may have been conceived during the last Leafs playoff run or thereabouts. I was born about six months after they won their last Stanley Cup. So you're closer to my wife's age than me. I'm a little All right. older. Go yeah. ahead. Okay, yeah, because you were, you were there for the uh, for the 36 and 37 Stanley Cup runs, right? Yeah, yeah sure. Okay. But uh, so so when I did the, yeah, you know, I so I just have my life has, as it pertains to the Leafs, has just been a constant annual exercise in, yeah, you can look forward to what's going to happen, but you know what? Brace yourself. You're kind of like, you know, you're kind of like the crash test dummy sitting in the car at the beginning mm. of the track before they hit the button to let it go. You know, this <laughs> this might turn out better. And yet you know that at the end something is going to happen and you're going to screech to a halt and crash into something and it's going to be terrible. So the only question every year is, is this going to simply be a full-on implosion or are they going to find some incredibly painful way to torment their fans a little further? That's, that's really the only question. Well, I was brutally tormented last night with my uh, son and wife watching the Boston game because they were, see, this is how it's done. Look, Uh this is how it's done. This is how it's done. Um, And and I think a lot of Leaf fans are feeling the same way you are, uh, especially considering the last time they did this, there was only six teams in the league. I remember remember 40 years, 50 years of my father throwing the slipper at the TV set for Hockey Night in Canada. Um, He was like like an Iraqi journalist. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Little did he know at that time. <laughs> He's uh, a trendsetter. He, yes. yeah, and, and clearly the trend continues. <laughs> How do you think the fans are feeling about this? Uh, again, talking about it last night on the show, we were chatting and if so I said to my guest yesterday, I was talking to David Alter, who uh, writes for SI.com and then Hockey News and a bunch of other places. And I said, like, we should probably have this discussion tomorrow, as in Wednesday, because if the Leafs lose 
in their first game against Tampa, there will be widespread full-on sphincter clenching <laughs> throughout Leaf Nation. Nation. If they win, I don't know that it's going to be any different because, again, what I just said, they could win the first three games of this. They could win the first three games, 9 nothing, 9 nothing, 9 nothing, yep. And there is a huge contingent of Leaf fans who will still say, Oh, I can't, I can't let myself think about a win because I know what's about to happen. I've, all they've done here is rather than torment me early, they've set me up for the greatest pain ever. So, so we'll see. So in other words, uh, don't even wake me up till they get past the first round? Well, I won't say that because f- the great, with the greatest pain holds the potential for the greatest pleasure, I would guess. And that sounds probably a little too... Uh, sounds you know, quite kinky, Scott. It really Very does. Good. It really does. I realized as I was saying it how this was going to be uh, sounding. But, <laughs> yes. Um, yes. But again, like I, I always hearken back to the Chicago Cubs fans who waited 108 years. Yep. And yet, you know what? They still showed up and they were still cheering and they were still ready to buy in. And so for them, you know, having gone through that, look, for a Leaf fan who sees his or her team win, if that ever happens, will have far <laughs> more joy than a Tampa Bay Lightning fan or someone who's had victory yeah. after victory. after the, the, the long drought, again, bad metaphor, but a cold drink of water after you've been wandering in the desert for a long time is way better than the second glass of water. You know, you bring up a valid point. If, you know, have you ever closed your eyes and thought, wow, what would it be like in Southern Ontario, if in fact they did go well, all the way and win? Yes, we well we saw. I mean, we got to be celebrating for a year. We got a hint of it. Now I don't know if it would be the same, but we saw it with the Raptors Championship Parade, yeah. and I think it would be different because I think it's a different demographic, and I think it's yeah. a, di- a lot of different things. But I think that even the people who aren't really hockey fans would suddenly, if the Leafs suddenly got into a position where they could win, you would find a lot of people. I mean, not everyone who was a Raptors viewer in the championship run was a diehard basketball fan. Yeah. But we are starved for something to feel good about. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the Ticats haven't won since 99. The Blue Jays haven't won since 93. The Raptors won, yeah, and TFC won. But the Leafs, I mean, 1967, we are starving for something to feel really good about. And so... We'll see. We'll see. I mean, look, I, you always have to have that little bit of hope, and you all, and they are a really good team. And there's no, yeah. there's no reason why we should be feeling this way because what happened five years ago, there's almost nobody left from that team. I mean, it's 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 a it's a different group for the most part now. There's no reason we should be as negative or halting, but. You know what? When you've been kicked in the butt as many times as Leaf fans have, you kind of you build up some scar tissue. There's absolutely no reason to feel negative uh, until you remember it's the Leafs. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, then you go, oh yeah, sixty-seven. What's the? I was talking about this with someone the other day. What's the greatest moment? If you're a Leaf fan, what's the greatest moment you've had in your lifetime? If you're a Leaf fan under 60, under 55, let's say, because after the last win, what's the greatest moment you've had as a Leaf fan in your lifetime? And you might say, well, Lanny McDonald scoring against the Islanders in 76, well, that's, or 77 or 78, whatever it was, that's a long time ago. Or you might say, uh, you know, when they went to the semifinals two years in a row with Pat Burns or, you know, the Pat Queen Air. But there's nothing there. But at the end of the road, there's always a disappointment at the end of every one of those stories. Yep. So you just kind of grow to expect it. And 
hope and cross your fingers and pray that maybe before we all die, this is something we'll get to see. Because you know what? Tampa Bay, they don't care about hockey down there. Why do they get to win all the time? Or in Carolina, (laughs) they've won a cup. Or in Anaheim, they've won a cup. And in Los Angeles, they've won a bunch. The places where the place where it matters the most is the one that suffers the hardest. It, it, it's, it, it's a cosmic mystery. I was thinking there for a sec. You know, your best leaf memory, your best leaf hope, your best leaf anything. It would just be getting a ticket to a game. Well, yeah, and not having <laughs> that's, to. That's about the only. I don't even dream about the cup. I just dream about someday being able to go. Yeah, and not having to carve out an essential organ to buy, sell it on the black market to pay for the ticket. Scott Radley with us, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Coming up after the six o'clock news. Have a great one, Scott. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks, Scott. You too. Enjoy tonight. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer. Michelo wrote in to say that I feel that unless the electric grid keeps pace with more electric cars, we may end up sleeping in the cold one dark winter night. A hybrid would be a good middle-of-the-road alternative to whatever the heck we're chasing now. Take care, Scott!